This is from another dimension in a way. It looks like something divine. When I think back of it today, I, I, I actually get quite moved. Let's go on a journey out in space and back again. It's so unusual and so splendorous that cannot avoid uh, attracting the interest of people. There's always something very spiritual about uh, witnessing such a beautiful light and dancing around. My name is Mikkel Hansen, and for the next 40 minutes, we will explore the phenomenon of Aurora Borealis on Northern Lights. The Northern Lights has been understood through culture, faith, and science. Now, let's explore some of the many wonders of the Northern Lights. It makes you speechless. The Aurora Borealis on Northern Lights has both fascinated and frightened people all through human history. Tales of ancestry and spirits has been told through generations, and the airy wonder of lights has acted as guidance and omens across cultures since ancient times. In a quest for answer, the physical nature of the aurora has been studied intensively, and through time, various hypotheses have seen the light of day. Aurora Borealis. What is it, and where does it come from? The term Aurora Borealis, meaning Red Dawn, was first used by the Italian astronomer Galileo Galilei in the early 1600s. In order to fully grasp this magnificent natural phenomenon, we must find our point of departure. The journey begins on a star located some 150 million kilometers out in space, the one we call our Sun. Though just another star in the Milky Way, among billions of other stars, the Sun is still massive by our standards. You can fit roughly 1.3 million Earths inside the Sun. The Sun can be understood as a giant power plant, where nuclear energy is created deep inside the core under great pressure and a temperature around 15 million degrees. Under these extreme conditions, atoms will move very fast and collide with each other constantly. Here, in the core, nuclear reactions release energy and electrical charged particles move from the core towards the surface. The movement of charged particles, or plasma, create magnetic fields inside the Sun. In some places, strong magnetic fields push their way up through the surface. These areas will appear darker, thus known as sunspots. But let's rewind for a bit, because the vast amount of knowledge that we have today is the mere product of a centuries-long effort by explorers dedicated to gain a better understanding of our world and the sky surrounding it. And to know where you are is to know where you come from. I can see it rising from a distance, towering towards the clear blue sky, the beautiful green copper dome on the top of the old astronomical observatory. Approaching the historical building, I can almost see the dome slowly dividing in two and a telescope appearing with an eye fixed on the sky. Standing in the old and lush garden surrounding this aging construction, I can sense the ambition and genuine curiosity that was the very foundation of this magnificent building. At its time of construction, in 1859, it was placed outside the massive medieval fortifications that once protected the city of Copenhagen against its enemies. 
Here, in the countryside, and high above ground, the delicate instruments were shielded against the disturbances of a living and expanding city. Since then, Copenhagen has grown in size, and the once remote location is now in the middle of a vibrant city with all its traffic. Today, the lush old garden is a small oasis for the locals. I can see my guests arriving on foot, walking up the gravel pathway to the top of the hill. We are meeting by the feet of a beautiful bronze statue of the world-famous Danish astronomer Tycho Brahe, who not only made significant scientific breakthroughs, but also laid groundstone for future astronomy. My name is Helge Krau. I'm a former professor of history and uh, technology of science, and uh, I'm presently employed at the Nisbo Institute in Copenhagen as an emeritus professor. Tycho, as is known internationally, is very much a transitional figure between the uh, old concept of natural philosophy in the late Renaissance and the new kind of uh, experimental and mathematical science which emerged in the early 17th century. But he is very typical for that period. First and foremost, he was an astronomer, but he also did uh, chemical work and uh, like other people in that period, he had a very broad range of interests. Tugubras famous Uranibor castle or the island of Wien was funded by the King Frederick II. He was uh, recognized as uh, the premier astronomer of his time and Uranibor was unique in its size and its purpose. It has been called the first example ever of big science as we know it today. This uh, famous scientific revolution, as, as it's called, dates from the mid-16th century from Copernicus, and then we typically, for reasons of convenience, say that it ended with Newton uh, in the late uh, 17th uh, century. So this was the period in what uh, science as we know it today was born. So Tycho was, in, in the beginning of this revolution, as indeed it was, I would say that Newton and Ole Römer was at the end of it. In many ways, the age of enlightenment, which roughly speaking is the 18th century, was the continuation of the scientific revolution. Tycho was definitely a pioneer uh, in the, uh, uh, as regards the new uh, scientific understanding. Uh, first of all, because of his very precise astronomical measurements, but he's also time typical uh, in the sense that. Um, uh, he didn't subscribe to what, to many people, was the defining feature of the uh, the new worldview, namely Copernicus's claim that uh, the uh, sun is the center of the universe and the uh, Earth is merely a planet. Uh, Tycho never accepted that. Of course, he, he had his reasons. Some of them were scientific, others were what we call non-scientific. Uh, but um, uh, one element in this new worldview. Uh, was that the overturn of the age-old belief that the heavens are immutable. Nothing new happens on the heavens. And uh, in 1572, when Tycho in Skåne in Sweden uh, saw with his own eyes uh, that something uh, new had happened in one of the stellar constellations, he called it a new star, Nova Stella, uh, he argued that this was indeed a new star, so uh, he um, he concluded that uh, this this uh, dogma, as it was, that the heavens are immutable, cannot be true. But at the same time, he tries to explain it 
but uh, his e- explanation is not scientific. It's very much uh, re- religious in the sense because he described it explicitly as a divine miracle. That was okay uh, still in the 1570s. Uh, 50 years later, it was not longer okay. Persons, and not only uh, Tuco, were re- religious almost by, by definition, and they believed in the Bible. But there's no reason why such a belief should um, exclude a scientific uh, understanding of the world. And indeed, all the pioneers of the scientific revolution, without exception, were Christians. The scientific revolution is not uh, contrary to, to what many people unfortunately think today, uh, was not a break with the church and definitely not a break with Christianity. Very on the contrary. I mean, by and large, the scientific revolution was a product of the intense Christian belief in that period. If it had not been there, science might not have been born. According to Hilje, through time, the aurora borealis has been understood both within faith, science and culture. But let's take a short break from history and take yet another look at the present scientific explanation. The plasma drags the magnetic field further outwards from the surface and the magnetic field stretches and twists like a rubber band. Until the rubber band snaps, releasing billions of tons of plasma into space. This is what we call a solar storm. Hurling out of the sun, the solar storm can reach a velocity of astonishing 8 million kilometers per hour. After 6 hours, it blows past the planet Mercury, after 12 hours, the planet Venus, and after 18 hours, the solar storm reaches Earth. It was more at the time of Galileo, certainly at the time of of Newton, religion and science had been separated, in the sense that they didn't contradict one another, but just being two different worlds which is a view that many people subscribe to even today. And why shouldn't they? A young couple is lying in the grass, having a break from the bright sun in the cooling shadow of a small brick cottage, probably not knowing that this humble construction is where geomagnetic measurements were conducted when the observatory was still active. There was a breakthrough in the mid-19th century when people realized that uh, the ultimate source of the aurora must be the sun. That was when people uh, discovered that there is an 11-year cycle uh, in uh, solar activity and that this uh, cycle was followed almost exactly by the uh, uh, auroral activity. We have two very great and influential figures in Scandinavia, one a Norwegian, uh, Christian Birgeland, professor of physics in Christiania, present Oslo, and the other uh, was the Swede, uh, Svante Arrhenius, who was a uh, professor of physical chemistry, he's one of the founding fathers of physical chemistry. He received a, the Nobel Prize in 1902 in chemistry. And, uh, and then uh, he was a leader of um, uh, theoretical aurora research. But they were rivals, uh, and um, they both wanted very much to be number one in the world in aurora research. With regard to uh, the research in Northern Light, at about 1930, we have a standard theory of the uh, 
uh, what the northern light is, how it is produced and so forth. And uh, this theory is more or less the same as the modern theory, which is of course much more advanced, but roughly it's the same. It's clear that modern astronomy has been developed and shaped through centuries in the minds of ambitious and curious people. The need for scientific methods, precise measurements, data collection and advanced technology has not only become evident, it has become the standard in all scientific experimentation. I'm walking through the green embossing forest in search of my next destination. I park the car further back and must continue by foot. I'm looking for a highly specialized scientific institution that conduct measurements on the magnetic field of the earth. But all I can see is dense forest, massive raspberry bushes and green fields stretching out as far as I can see. Something catches my eye among the raspberry bushes, almost swallowed by nature. I found the right place. This is the Magnometer Ground Station, one of the field stations under the Space Department at Danish Technological University. The next challenge is to find my contact in this green wilderness. She's called Anna Villa, a Swede living in Denmark and a scientist of geomagnetism who is often traveling to Greenland to conduct geomagnetic measurements. I work with um, uh, monitoring and measuring and calibrating and analyzing data of uh, Earth's magnetic field uh, from ground. So we have uh, measurements in, in Greenland, Faroe Islands and Denmark um, that measure continuously all the time. And uh, what we measure here is um, uh, sources from the core, the mantle, the crust, um, the, the space around Earth, but also the upper part of atmosphere. And the upper part of atmosphere is called the ionosphere. And here we have electrically currents moving around. Uh, and these are closely connected to the auroras. Um, and we can actually kind of track them um, by watching our uh, or analyzing our uh, magnetometers in Greenland, especially because this is where the auroras uh, usually occurs. So, um, uh, so by doing that and also uh, by looking at the intensity of the um, magnetic field, we uh, in the group can see um, the dynamics of uh, the auroras or, or the current system uh, in the polar ionosphere. Let's take the last part of the scientific explanation. It collides with the magnetic field of the Earth, also known as the magnetosphere. Plasma from the solar storm streams along the lines of the magnetosphere towards the magnetic poles. When the charged particles of the solar storm collide with atoms of oxygen and nitrogen in the upper atmosphere, they transfer energy to these atoms and excite them. And to calm back down, the oxygen and nitrogen eject some of this energy in form of light, or the aurora borealis. Depending on what altitude the charged particles interact with the oxygen or the nitrogen, different colors of light will be produced. Some will appear as green, some as red, some as purple, and so on. So the spectacular dancing movements of the aurora borealis is basically the meet between solar plasma and atoms in our own upper atmosphere, thus illuminating a clear connection between the sun and the earth.
from Meditio Space, we are working with uh, space weather. And the space weather is um, um, where the Earth's magnetic field interacts with uh, the solar wind magnetic field and particles from the sun, particles outside our solar system, and also um, uh, radiation from, uh, from the sun. Uh, that can uh, endanger our technological systems. It um, can also uh, uh, damage, uh, for example, satellites. Um, create induced currents for uh, that um, uh, that disturb or damage uh, power grids. Um, so, and, and one of the one of the space weather effects is also aurora. So, so what we do is to that we model and monitor the aurora of uh, Greenland, and uh, right now we are working on uh, um, a smartphone app to uh, notify um, um, tourists, but also uh, people living in 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 the regions where you can see the auroras. And of course, this is um, mainly now uh, focused on Greenland because there we we can see it very often. But it's also when when we have um, uh, magnetic storms, we can also see it, for example, in the Faroe Islands and in Denmark. Another thing that we do in our space weather group in uh, D2 space is to monitor uh, the sun and see, uh, um, look at the activity on the sun. And if there is any big eruptions, it's called coronal mass ejections, uh, we can model and see when it uh, actually will hit us. If it will hit us, then it's uh, important for um, um, uh, it's important to know how um, how much impact it will have. So this depends on the velocity and the density and so on. So these are the ground measurements um, for aurora studies. Uh, we also have. Um, um, uh, colleagues around the world who have uh, auroral imagers, uh, all sky cameras, uh, taking picture from ground uh, on the northern lights and compare it with the data, for example. We have measurements in one of the most interesting parts uh, in the world for uh, for polar light studies, and this is uh, Greenland, of course. Anna invites me to take a closer look at her office in the green wilderness. Black huts appears between the bushes. These small huts, mostly constructed in wood and copper nails to reduce magnetic disturbances, is where Anna conducts her geomagnetic measurements. We can't really enter the huts because my recording devices would disturb her measurements. But in the sunlight outside the hut, we can enjoy coffee and a personal experience with the Aurora Borealis. I have seen the Northern Lights several times, um, and one of the one one of the very best one was when I was in uh, Kekataswak in the west coast of Greenland, um, and I was there working to measure the magnetic field. And in the evening, I was uh, working by my computer, uh, regularly checking on the data um, from our station at at the, the location, and suddenly. I could just see the data dropping really, uh, really powerful and, and, and extremely. And I knew that this was uh, associated with strong auroras. So I was just rushing out to my 
put my coat on uh, and my shoes and uh, running out uh, to a dark uh, location. And I would say that the data didn't lie. It was uh, an incredible show on the, on the on the sky, and I could see dancing form in in grayish um, nuances. And uh, and then when my when I was watching for a while, I could see more colors because my my eyes were adjusted to the darkness. And then suddenly the sky just exploded. Uh, I could see green colors, uh, reddish uh, colors, and white as well. I could really see, you know, these spirits um, that that are in the uh, myths uh, from the Inuit, Inuit culture. My colleague that I trained in, in in Greenland to measure the magnetic field, he told me that when he was a boy, um, he was told to not um, whistle when he saw the northern lights because then uh, these um, these souls uh, that were where the northern lights can go and get him and i remember once when i was standing there alone uh, and and then i kind of feel like okay i want to try this so I, I was whistling a bit and then it just came running you know and you you have this instinct i mean i, I know that this is not <laughs> the case i know that these are particles um colliding with molecules and atoms in the atmosphere but still you have this um, reflex or um, instinct to, to, to actually just run away and at some point I realized that the aurora was actually just above me uh, and that was that was uh, uh, incredible because then I know that when I was standing there in the darkness in Greenland I knew that the footprint of that magnetic field line where I was standing was uh, stretching out in the uh, magnetosphere of Earth and um, guiding these particles from the magnetosphere down to the location just above me. And and to know that you have this connection like from me standing there on ground and just out uh, in, in the space near Earth, that was amazing. At this point, it seems evident that the aurora borealis can be understood in terms of both culture and science. But what about the more mythical aspects? In Greenland, people held the bittersweet belief that the lights were the spirits of children who had died in childbirth, dancing across the sky. This is my source on indigenous tales and legends of the aurora borealis. My indigenous name is Woasamgan. It means cedar bowl. And then my English name is Peter Romer. He's an indigenous Canadian and has an extensive knowledge on traditional tales across cultures. We meet online, across time zones, for a talk about the Aurora Borealis. For Peter, it's a midday meeting. For me, it's a late night session on the traditional tales of the Aurora Borealis. I come from the Niska Nation, which is people of the Nass River. And we reside in northern British Columbia uh, on the mainland, and I'm from a community called Ginkolath. So as we know, above the Arctic Circle, you know, the green and purple lights have been a story of legends and myth. Um, some see it as a source of spiritual power, some see it as the ancestors, while others see the lights as something that should be feared. The light really has to do with a lot of life and death, and it could be perceived as a it's uh, um, something that's very magical and 
and positive, but also can be something that's feared. And you have to, and but across the board, it's something that has to always be respected. I could tell you the story of the Dene when it's really dark and they're they're out there and they actually can't quite see. They're out at night, maybe uh, uh, hunting or, or traveling to another camp. And if they lost track of their path of, of where they are in the tundra, they would actually call on the light by whistling. Uh, the light would come down and brighten their path their way to back to camp and what's really interesting is that they can smell the light uh, they say it smells like sulfur and uh, the dogs really don't like it um, and they also said it's not too good to look too long into the light because um, you could upset it and it's kind of part of that respect you have to have with the light but on the more kind of sinister side and dark side of the myths and legends, according to my elder Mika Mike, who was speaking to Nikalwit, Nunavut, she told me that the lights, when they're not ha when they're not happy, is when they're very busy in the sky. It means the children are playing too long in the dark and need to be inside. The ancestors or the light miss the, or the light they miss the grandchildren. And if the children don't respect their ancestors' wishes, they could be taken to the afterlife. They may seem this may seem harsh, but it's also a lesson. One should make sure that the kids are safe from the night and respect their ancestors' ways. There's there's the light side of of the lights, and there's the dark side of the lights. In Finland, um, where it was held that the lights were caused by the firefox who, who ran so quickly across the snow that his tail caused sparks to fly into the night sky, creating an aurora. The Sami people of Finnish Lapland, they see the lights were created from the, from the spume of water ejected from whales. On the lighter side of the myths and legends, the Inuit of Labrador can believe the aurora to be the light of torches of spirits, illuminating the pathway to uh, heaven for souls of people who have died a voluntary or violent death. Uh, the whistling, crackling noise, which sometimes accompanies the aurora, is the voices of these spirits trying to communicate with the people of the earth. And they should always be answered back in a whispering voice. So the whistling, we've, we've heard that the whistling plays such a, a role with the light. So you can whistle them down if you need guidance. Um, or you could blow at them for them to go away, and some say don't whistle them. When anyone else said don't whistle at them, that's not good. Others say it's good if you need help, but respect it. One told me whistle them down, and then another told me don't ever whistle them. And I realize it's just different perspectives to different cultures. A lot of legends and myths are actually based off real events that happened. Now scientists are starting to... Uh, incorporate traditional eco-knowledge, but to create that proper relationship between science and indigenous knowledge is that they have scientists have to engage properly, which is a huge uh, lesson that needs to be still learned by scientists. A lot of scientists are very arrogant. They think they know it all. Why do I need to consult with these indigenous is always their kind of attitude. Yeah, there, there's a story of the whale and Thunderbird. 
So one day the Thunderbird and whale had a battle and uh, Thunderbird pulled the whale all the way up to the sky and dropped it into the ocean and it created a massive tsunami and earthquake and it wiped out some of the nations here. And this happened in 1700. And then this old stories were always saying, talking about this and that there was a tsunami in 1700. But the scientists didn't want to believe it um, until they found the records of, uh, in Japanese records that there was a tsunami here on the West Coast in 1700. At the exact same time, they had written it down. How many scientists live in a gray area without connecting those dots? Because those dots actually are going to help or connect things to like back up that science. It's they're going to back up each other. You know, when you're a scientist and if you don't keep your mind open to those things, you're not feeding in the whole picture. You're uh, as a human, you're not sensing it properly. You, you never understand something until you understand the whole picture. More scientists are starting to respect that the two have to merge to get a full understanding in a, of the bigger picture. But we still there's a long way to go between uh that symbiotic relationship. Every myth and legend has a lesson, and then you just got to decipher the legend a bit to understand what what they're really saying. You know, it'd just be boring if you just said it. I mean, for indigenous, you know, the the creator is basically the energy of the universe, really. A lot of indigenous don't talk about a god. They talk about the creator. And I think creators like the universe. And then the universe has its energies and has certain energies for certain reasons. One of those energies come from the sun, you know, and it's northern light. So even though the science is there of where it's coming from, is still, I think, can still be considered spirits or ancestors, if, if you may, still energy. I think it's sometimes it's how our own brains want us to perceive something, maybe an ancestor, someone we lost, someone we're thinking about. So that's what we see. We see what we do, right? So the hunters, they see belugas and whales and, you know, walruses, because that's what they see. So when they look at the sky, it's kind of imprinted in their mind. I think it all has to do with energy, and that energy, there's something that gels with science and traditional knowledge together, but you have to understand the full picture on both sides, so both sides complement each other. Science and indigenous tales cannot only coexist, it should also be in a symbiotic relation where knowledge is shared. On the one hand, it requires an open-mindedness among scientists and an understanding about the older and more traditional texts on the Aurora Borealis. Hello. Hi, this is Esa speaking. I hear your voice very well. I have called Isa in Finland, and through our online conversation, I hope that he can enlighten me on why there shouldn't be any animosity between scientists and indigenous people. My name is uh, Esa Turunen, and I'm a scientist uh, actually a space scientist who retired last autumn after 42 years at the University of Oulu, which is the northernmost university with the Faculty of Natural Sciences in Finland. I was working with Northern Lights actively, uh, studying the near-Earth space and sun-Earth interactions. If I'm thinking my science career, the more I have been learning, the more there is things to discover, the more there are things to try to understand and the more important is our work for the future generations. If you think about um, where I've been working most of my career, that was in the Sedangulet Geophysical Observatory, which is one of the oldest observatories in the whole world, uh, more than 100 years old. 
and uh, originally established uh, for making magnetic measurements. Magnetic measurements, uh, this is important because uh, Northern Lights is a space with a disturbance which induces uh, electric currents in upper atmosphere and these in turn will induce variations on, on magnetic field measured on the Earth. So measuring magnetic field with a simple, simple device like a compass, uh, let's say, uh, is one way to measure space weather disturbances. So that was the basis of the observatory. But more importantly, phenomena like this, like the Northern Lights, which is a, I would say it's a global phenomenon, understanding this needs more than one single instrument or one single person. It's this collaboration. We have observatories in the Arctic area, uh, Denmark has um, in Greenland, and any significant result is in fact a result of various people working together from different countries, different cultures. Maybe the most important fact is the interaction with people from different countries, different institutions, different uh, cultures, and we work all together for the same goal, gaining more knowledge. When, when I was a young boy, like seven years old, then we were having this race for space between US and Soviet Union at that time. And there were, TV was showing uh, these um, flights to the moon and all that. Of course, I wanted to be an astronaut myself. Later, I found myself studying um, theoretical physics, physics, computer science, and this type of uh, technological subjects. All this was like... Um, like the dream of the young boy. Not an astronaut, but quite near. <laughs> Curiosity is, of course, one which drives from young children up to any age. I've been out there for thousands of nights watching the aurora, and I can't say that, um, okay, specific night is better than the other. What I can say is that these lights are attractive. And even now, still today, after this... Uh, 42 years at the university making research about this topic, I'm still fascinated by the beauty. Maybe that's the fascination, that, that the journey is endless. <laughs> Every single night, I will go out. After my wife is asleep, I'll put warm clothes in the winter time, minus 30 degrees Celsius outside, I will go out. And I want to see this wonder of nature again and again and again. So I, I, this fascination is amazing. It doesn't stop. It never ends. It's always a pleasure to see. So when I go out, I see this northern lights. I'm waiting for, for the beauty of the phenomenon. And of course, I see animals and figures in the sky. It's very natural that people have related those forms. So in, in some photographs, which I have taken myself, for example, you clearly see an animal in the sky. And it's, it's just a it's just natural. And of course, there are stories. I mean, what is the aurora? If you think about it, of course, people try to explain things from their perspective. And uh, this is reflected in the stories. All these um, explanations or stories, they are kind of descriptions about the phenomenon. When you go out for the first time in your life, you never saw aurora. And if suddenly all the sky turns into green, red, violet, blue, and then you try to describe what is happening in your own language. And I think these descriptions we, which we find in the old myths and, and stories, these are important because they, they describe us how actually you feel and express them to the other people. 
indigenous communities are of course very important because they have been living in the Arctic areas under the Northern Lights. And I would never really reveal, like uh, omit that knowledge. It has its own way of interpretation, but it's something which has been gathered throughout uh, the generations. How about sound of aurora? And most scientists would simply say that, wow, that's just rubbish because there's no sound of aurora. There are no scientific recordings of that. However, all the indigenous people speak about uh, sounds of aurora. I never heard it myself. But I think that the fact that their stories are similar, it's a motivation. This should be studied. And collaborating with all these people is an important part of the scientist's life. This work is impossible without international interaction between people. And the real interaction happens between people. It doesn't happen between institutes or countries. It happens between people of different origins. But the most important thing for me is, of course, is that uh, we as children of stardust, we human beings, we are here to learn. And I think that we have a lot of things to learn. These northern lights are like friends of me. Of course, I, these friends are not living in that way as our, our physical friends, but they are friends for me in such a way that I go out every night when possible to meet my friends. My conversation with Isa ends here. Unlike Isa's everlasting affection to the northern lights, that doesn't seem to have an end. After studying Aurora for more than four decades, he still sneaks out at night for yet another encounter with his airy friends. So there you have it, the magic moment unfolded. The Aurora is as ancient as planet Earth itself, and human mankind has been preoccupied with it for as long as we know. It has been given essence and meaning, and it has been measured, deconstructed and quantified. Still today, the view on Aurora depends greatly on who you ask 